Business is simple. It's just not easy. We focus on three things to help you run and grow your business more easily. Talent, sales, and how to scale. This is the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. Hey everyone, Brian Whittington with this episode of the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. Boy, we have cutting edge, leading in. We This thing isn't even on the market yet. We're talking with Nate Nasrallah, and he is the founder of Fluent. And we're going to be talking about something critically important and something that I've been learning over the last couple of weeks and months about the, the absolute necessity of this is how in the world do we build and make champions in an enterprise complex sale? So with that said, welcome to the show, Nate. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Yeah, I've been really looking forward to this. So Nate's a pretty cool guy. He's out there hanging out, giving away some incredible content. And matter of fact, I think you just uh, released an ebook, right? Or some type of white paper to give some ideas about how to do this. What was that? the name of that? Yeah, it's called the Enterprise Sales Playbook. So we posted it free for anybody to go check out. Um, it's built on a web page. You can also download it, but totally free for anybody on the Fluent site. Cool. So check that out. Uh, he's a member of Pavilion, uh, Rev Genius, and Salescast. So that's how we came across one another. And we're, so instead of going into this too terribly much about yappity yapping, let's jump right into the topic of Nate. Why in the world should we listen to you about building and making champions? Well, I, I guess I'll, I'll start by saying I was either smart enough or stupid enough to build an entire company focused on this topic, which is fluent. And it really came out of my experience, both building and then leading enterprise sales teams over the last decade. So part of my, my journey, I'm a repeat startup founder. I realized pretty quickly that if I wanted to continue building products, which I love, I had to figure out how to sell them. And to sell them effectively, I needed champions inside of those deals. And when my first startup was bought, I had the opportunity to stand up an enterprise sales team from scratch. Um, the entire company was focused first on SMB. And I saw this opportunity. My role within the new company wasn't really well-defined. And so I went to our CEO and I said, hey, I think we can go from four-figure deals to six and seven-figure deals. Let me figure out the playbook, how we need to adapt our process in order to get these deals done. And so I... Um, one, read everything that I could, and then two, figured out what actually held weight by testing it to figure out, okay, if, if I actually want to build a team and get this backed by our CEO, I got I to gotta show results pretty quickly. So it, um, in short, it was both the process of learning, doing, testing, throwing out what didn't work, keeping what did, and eventually I've applied all those things into the product that we're building an entire company around at Fluent. So in short, enterprise sales is kind of my thing. Nice. Okay. So you've been at this a little bit. And, and I like what you said here, right? Is you went and studied everything out there. And the curious thing, there's a lot of talking heads and a lot of people that say that they know what they're doing. And it doesn't seem like, you know, once you, you dive down a little bit more deeply and you, you pull back the covers, it's a little bit challenging to find out that eh, maybe they don't know quite as much as they think. So I guess in this journey, what were some of the major things that you've uncovered and how did you land on building these champions? So one of the biggest misconceptions that I found pretty quickly um, in enterprise sales is that it's about the deal size or the contract size, that what makes it hard is the amount of money that's being spent. And it's, that's not true. In fact, it's the number of contacts, not the size of the contract that creates the complexity in a complex deal. And the reason why there is so much more complexity is the number of contacts increases. 
is because you're now introducing an entirely different set of people with different views of the problem, different sets of priorities. They're all evaluated, compensated on a different set of metrics. And in order to get a deal done, you've got to bring them all together and agree on not only the fact that the product can help, but that there's a problem that is worth doing something about and doing something about it now. And that is a really hard thing to do when you're talking not just like one or two people who can execute a decision, but 10, 12 people, many of whom can't, and you have to work through them in order to reach other levels within the organization. So that was something that I discovered very quickly is you read a lot about you know, the, um, call it prestige, that comes with becoming an enterprise sales rep and landing the big contract and you know six, seven figures, it's sexy to talk about. But when you get down to it, it's not about the contract size at all. It's about the complexity is the number of contacts involved in the deal. Yeah, so with that complexity of number of contacts within the deal, so I call it a buyer's, the size of the buyer group, right? Yep. And within that, you pointed out that each is compensated differently. They have different competing prioritization. And I'm kind of curious, as you were discovering that, how did you identify that the champion was the key one to, to attack rather than um, pain points or budgetary constraints and the, all of that other stuff that you'd see out there? Mm-hmm. So first, I'll, I'll just kind of level set on when I talk about a champion, like who are they and ha- how do you identify the people who have the characteristics or the attributes of a champion? So when I think about a champion, and to your point, there's this whole group of buyers, buying team, buying circle. Now, to find a champion in there, there needs to be three things present in that person. One, there's incentive. So they have to have some type of personal connection or a reward that's tying them to the deal. You know, it's, it's like the what's in it for me. Right. And if that's not clear, you're not going to have somebody to stick with you through the whole sales cycle. So one incentive, two is influence. They're actually in a position to do something about a problem. They can leverage relationships, organizational know-how, titles, so on, to move a deal forward. And then the third thing is information. They have hard-to-find facts that can help you shortcut the path in a very, otherwise very long sales cycle. So incentive, influence, information, if you don't have all three of those things, then you have a different role. For just uh, one quick example, if you don't have any influence, but you have incentive and information, you would be a coach, not a champion. Now, um, unpack that a little bit more. Why do some people or how is it that some people can get hung up on that coach as opposed to a champion? Because we see that quite a lot. So it, it comes back to this idea of influence. And influence is the ability to shape perspective, to create accountability for action and for progress. So an analyst, let's say, who has a very um, significant need right? They're like dying for a better workflow that your product can help them with. And they are deep in the weeds of that tool every single day. There's definitely incentive there. And they may know quite a bit from being part of different meetings and so on, um, who might need to be involved. So they have those two pieces to them, but ultimately they can't do anything about it because they may not be in a level, let's say, you know, with the SVP of marketing or the VP of engineering, who is making more of the critical decisions about what the team is going to spend time on. So that's one example. The analyst may be considered a coach, not a champion, because they can't actually affect any of the change they want to see happen. Now, are most people identifying that by title 
by job function, because my sense is there's mm-hmm. a lot of people have the right title and you would think are decision maker, but don't have the interpersonal skills to be an influencer within that buyer's group. So how do we truly identify that influencer? Yeah, so it, it doesn't always correlate directly with title. For example, let's say you have um, an engineering manager who has been at the company for the last five years and they know the nuances and the intricacies of how that particular team works. And they just had a new VP engineering that came on in the last, call it 30 days. Typically, that manager is going to have a greater level of influence because they have a longer standing track record that other people may be responding to more quickly while they're still kind of figuring out this VP. So there are other things that you want to look for. Um, Three other things that I would clue into is one, um, people that challenge the status quo, like they'll ask hard and probing questions and they have this mindset of like, well, it doesn't matter that we've always done it this way. Like we need to change it. Um, Second, and this one is, is, I would actually say the most important one is they're able to articulate what the company cares about, not just what they themselves as a contact in the deal cares about, because what their biggest pain or problem is, is probably not rising up to the level of the leadership um, perspective. So they're able to consider their leadership goals. And then three, they're, uh, they're actually committing to owning tasks and following through. Um, for example, if they say, hey, I'm going to get a meeting with our CTO on the books, can they or can't they actually do that? Do they have the ability to influence the CTO's calendar and where they put time during their week? That's going to show you pretty quickly whether or not they are truly a champion. That's pretty interesting. Now, the articulating what the company wants or putting the leader's uh, involvement there, a lot of this, um, a really good resource, I'm guessing that you probably read as well as the challenger, uh, the challenger buyer. Uh, was a real good eye-opener for me. And I, I forget the, uh, do you remember the three ways that they talk about there? There's a couple of um, segments that they show that challenger buyer needs to be. Do you have any, do you remember that by chance? Not to put um, you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, Jen Allen over at Challenger is going to kill me because I am also blanking and we're uh, scheduled to talk in a couple of weeks. So I'm going to do a little homework, Jen, if you happen to listen to this, I'm going to do a little homework for our conversation. <laughs> Yeah, we'll edit this part out. But yeah, because he goes into um, it goes into challenging the status quo as one, right? So there's mm-hmm. the teacher, and then there's the um, the the different roles. Yeah, um, the status quo. That's okay. We'll, we'll skip that and come back to it. But I think really it's that challenging the status quo and being mm-hmm. others focused by looking at the company's goals, the company's perspectives, to be able to pull that up through. Now. Um, You'd also talked about, okay, so that's how we identify. How else might we identify whenever we're looking into an organization and we're, we're trying to build out that org chart to find mm-hmm. out who to go after? What are the things that should we use to identify these champions? So the, the biggest identifier is behavior. It's not anything that you can look at through a LinkedIn sales navigator search or find on an org chart because Champions at the end of the day, they aren't found, they're created, you develop them. And over time, you begin to see whether or not they are truly a champion by the way that they commit and follow through. And so I'll I'll kind of walk through this idea of testing champions, like what does that mean? Um, So I'm happy to go deep on practices for testing a champion. But what I will say is I'll just kind of reinforce this idea is that even though somebody may have the attributes or the characteristics, if they're not behaving like a champion, then they are not at the end of the day, a champion that's committed to your deal. I think that's a really key concept. So 
if at one time they miss it, okay, they still might be a champion, but if you start to see a trend, so why don't you unpack that a little bit? Because I think that's critically key. We'd all want our silver, right? Us in sales, and we're building up these lists. We're going after these folks. We'd all like to identify that silver bullet. They're this title, or you can identify by they post blankety blank times. And it seems like that's not the case. It's mm-hmm. really, you lay out a couple of um, key action points and steps. And if they follow through that with that, keep their commitments and are able to get that influence, that's whenever we, we know that we truly have it. Yeah, spot on. So okay. one, of my, one of my favorite questions to ask, once you've seen the characteristics or those kind of three different traits that we were talking about, a question that says, how confident do you feel that our product can help you address this problem, let's say on a scale of one to 10? And where they place themselves on that scale of one to 10, and the reason why it's, it's helpful to use the number is it's very black and white. Like they will pick one number and let's, let's say that they're an eight. Um, you could ask a follow-up to say like, well, is there something that you feel you need to see, but haven't yet in order to get to a 10 out of 10, like totally confident. And when they're there, they're like, yes, I want everybody to feel the same way that I do like 10 out of 10, we need this then you can begin to work with them. And along the way, continuing to test that they are showing again, the behaviors of a champion that's working with you in order to develop the deal. So ways that I would go about testing champions after you've kind of gone through some questions to figure out, are they committed? Um, One, I always like to start by flipping roles and saying like, Hey, when you go back to your team, how will you describe the product to them? Um, What, you know, what would you say? And hearing how they talk about and articulate your product's value, it should be a light or a window into what it is that they want to share and what they actually believe about the product, uh, number one. Two, over time, I like to move communication to increasingly called intimate forms. Um, so going from email to a Slack thread to text messages, and you'll start to see kind of more you know casual ad hoc language. Um, now, This next one is something that I see a lot of sales reps doing incorrectly or wrong. And it's this idea of like assigning action items or giving homework to somebody after a call. But the idea is that you want to make sure that it's value added. So something like calling a customer reference or sharing data for um, if you do a POC or proof of concept as part of your sales process. So make sure that the things you're asking them to do are actually helpful and truly helpful for them. Um, And then kind of the last one um, that is a ton of fun is actually having them run a team demo. So let's say that you have a whole group of people that you hadn't yet met with. The champion has already been through one or two demos, ask them to present a piece on some of the key features or pieces of the product that they really resonated with and see if they're willing to, you know, lead that conversation with you. Nice. Uh, And that one would be really interesting because that talks about complete ownership. It shows that how easy it is to use because it's incredible, right? You get on with an AE that's been doing this forever and they're, they're a sales engineer that's doing this forever. They make the demo look so easy. And then you got to use it the first time you feel like the biggest fool, like how in the world did they make it look so easy? I love that one. That's great. Okay. So um, in order to really identify this one, we have to go into an organization that's maybe right title or right position. And we're going to have to do some research on that. We identify them by 
ensuring that they have the incentive to act, the, the, how they're incentivized or they have some skin in the game to really mm-hmm. um, use their political capital for this, that they have some type of influence over that buyer's group. And we're looking at that, that influence as being able to challenge status quo, articulate what the company wants and, and blend that into this solution. And then really, as you're progressing, owning the task, if they're going to make the introduction, they make the introduction, that they follow through, that they're getting back to you in a timely basis and, and proceeding that, that communication. If I can take a little bit of what you said, mm-hmm. take that communication into more of an intimate setting, whether moving that to Slack or, or texting or something like that, and not just very, um, uh, what's the word, septic, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so, and that's that. And then lastly, um, information, that last part of IDing it is, do they have the in, internal workings? Do they know the ins and outs and the political scant landscape? So if we get that, we're, we can be pretty confident that we have our champion. That's right. And I'll also add on one other piece to this. Um, beautifully said and a spot on recap, by the way. Thank you. And I, I heard you mention this idea of like political know-how or ability to navigate the politics a little bit. And oftentimes it's easy to get caught up in kind of the structural maze that is the enterprise. But a big piece of this comes down to messaging and language as well. So a piece of information isn't just kind of call it um, team structure, but what is the team talking about? How are they talking about it? And what is leadership saying is their goal? Because a key piece to what as a sales rep you need to do is figure out the right words and language to describe your value and to describe your product. For example, let's say you are working with a um, customer success team and the chief customer officer is ultimately the person that you want involved in the deal. If that chief customer officer walks into a board meeting and the board is hammering them about net revenue retention, we need to increase lifetime revenue of our key accounts. Otherwise, we aren't going to be able to hit the type of growth that we want. What is that chief customer officer going to talk to the rest of their team and their reports about? Increasing net revenue retention. And so if you come in as a salesperson and you start talking all about churn, reducing churn, reducing churn, you're going to miss the mark. Though your product may be able to help increase and expand revenue over key accounts over their lifetime, if you're not talking about and framing your value in those same words that the chief customer officer is already thinking about, you know, your, your message is going to fall flat. And so that is a critical and a pretty key piece of information that you can also work with your champion to develop and um, tease out throughout the sales cycle. Yeah, and, and I think part of that is going to come out of this create stage, which we're going to go into next. And I like what you said there, because too many times people are selling on save money, save time. And mm-hmm. that's where you can get really commoditized. I think what you're saying here, Nate, is being able to, from that champion, identify what the business outcomes are and then base that solution with how they're going on sales objectives or business objectives to hit those business results and then use that language to, to, to help um, get this across the organization. Is that kind of what you're saying there? Yeah, that's exactly right. The sale always happens on two different levels, at the contact level and at the company level. And at the contact level, it's like, do, do you like this product? Is it easy to use? And will it help you do your job better than you otherwise can today? At the company level, to your point, it's all about the outcome. It's like, is this driving for the most important and most pressing thing for the company at this time? And if you aren't able to use messaging to bridge the gap between those two, because again, 
as let's say a customer success manager, you may be totally geeked out about the features and functions of a particular product. <laughs> but, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But if you look at that, especially in an enterprise setting, the person who's ultimately signing the contract, and maybe even adjusting the entire workflow of a whole CS organization, who's going to be able to do that? It's going to be the chief customer officer who knows and has a set of priorities that they want to manage to. And messaging is how you bridge the gap because again, you know, your, your product operates and supports both goals. I want an easier workflow. I want to expand net revenue of my key accounts. Both are things that you can enable and you have to clearly show that at both levels, the contact and the company level. Yeah, so if you look at this value chain and a gentleman who's on, I think it's a, a segment or two before you here, Nate, a guy by the name of John Stopper, he talks about the value chain and he mm-hmm. talks about that, that value chain most people enter in at that efficiency level, right? So if we look at that efficiency, that's um, save time and money. And then you get up to strategic growth. And then you also get into that customer experience. And so at that customer experience, that strategic growth, you're taking out any vernacular. They, They don't care. They could care less about the features and benefits. And it really gets into Will this help us to hit our strategic goals and, and, and speaking all to that in their language? And I think that's what you're talking about earlier. You want to use their language, not yours. Don't put in your own jargon. Use mm-hmm. their actual words. Even if they're saying the wrong things, don't correct them, right? Use their language and say, hey, we might look at it this way, but change your vernacular for them and teach your whole entire team on that. That's, I, I think, pretty, pretty funny how people rather be right than win. Mm-hmm. Language using their language is key. I mean, it's critical. And you're also touching on a point within kind of this whole process, uh, what, I, what I'll call a problem statement, how to develop language that even creates a deal in the first place, starting from the first moment that you're doing discovery. And this is where oftentimes discovery is done in a way to try to ask questions that qualify a deal mm-hmm. based on will they fit with our product? As opposed to using discovery to say, what is the priority that the company at an executive level, company leadership is focused on and says, this is the most pressing thing for us because it hurts and it needs to be addressed. And that's the art of good discovery is starting first by identifying and framing correctly a problem that is going to put language to and help your idea travel through the entire organization traverse all the different contacts and all the way up to an executive level leadership that you actually need to get to. I'm happy to go into how to actually do that and what a problem statement is, but that's the other element of language that has to be a a good enterprise rep has to be thinking about very early on and from the first discovery conversation. Now, whenever you're talking problem statement, and and let's do this, I have in my Mm -hmm. notes, we we discussed ID and we're going to go to create and then help in a second. Will this be under the create section or should we hit this quick tangent and then come back to the create? So it bridges both, but here's the piece that applies to creating a champion. And the idea is that People don't wake up wanting to buy software. The <laughs> what, day. they don't? They don't. They, they, they want to get a certain job done and they want to avoid as much pain and pursue as much gain as they can along the way. And if you upfront begin to dive too fast into the particulars of a certain product, you've missed the entire piece of why that matters on both a functional level and then a personal level. And I'll give you an example of this. So I was um, talking uh, last Friday 
We're recording this on a Monday. So Friday afternoon, I had this moment. I was talking with an account executive who was looking at joining the beta of our product. And when I was asking, like, why did you even take the time on a Friday afternoon when it's the end of the quarter, you're either hustling to try to beat your goal or you already did beat your goal. And so you're, you're, you know, taking the afternoon easy. Why in the world take 30 minutes to talk to me? And as we pressed into it, what he described was how he is trying to get an edge in sales because the more he can win in sales with less time invested in the week, the more time he can spend with his family. And he's expecting a new kid who is going to be here any month. And so his thing to me was, this matters to me because I will be a father of three and I want to show up for my kids as often as possible. And the problems that I'm running into in my kind of sales day-to-day are preventing that from happening. So in his mind, the biggest problem is the amount of time I want to spend with my family. And there's, there's something there. And good discovery can help you identify like, why does this even matter to you? Features and functions aside, what's the point and why would you invest time in this? And now I know how to talk about the whole point of what we're doing. It's, it's not around, again, features and functions. It's about, it's about the problem that truly matters to him. And that's, there's an obstacle preventing me from being a father of three very soon. And the beauty about if we do this, we might, like shock of shock, we might find that the problem that they're trying to solve isn't something that we can actually help them with. Yes. And a lot of times people are like, oh, that's, that's a bad news. But no, it's not. It's great news because if it's a no, if it's an N-O, I want a K-N-O-W as quickly as possible. And then by me fessing up that, hey, listen, I don't think that I can help you here, but boy, this contact or this reference or this uh, company over here, I, I think is what you're looking for. You will now have the biggest raving fan in the universe and a new center of influence for introductions and referrals like you've never seen before. So I, I love what you're talking about there, Nate. Well said. Well said. Sometimes the most helpful thing you can do is push somebody away and say, hey, we're not the right fit. Yeah. And the curious thing is even whenever you do that and you get it wrong, if they don't believe you, they'll fight back and tell you all the reasons why they are right fit. And you go, oh, okay, I guess you're right. And that Mm -hmm. makes the sale tremendously easier as well. All right, cool. So let's, um, you talked about a problem statement. So are you using design thinking and developing that problem statement or just overarching, uncovering through good questioning strategies, the root problem that we're trying to, for which we're trying to solve? Yeah, both. So I'll take that second piece first is kind of digging down to the root cause. So let's, let's um, take an example. So here's one that I, I go into in the playbook with the example of uh, marketing software. And so the idea is somebody may sh- show up to you and say, hey, I scheduled this call because um, I need some help figuring out how to drive more leads. And they're like, you know, our marketing source pipeline was down. And that's a big problem. So as you go through, you know, the, uh, so one framework is the five whys. You've got to get at least five levels deep to truly understand what the root driver of an issue is. So, you know, well, why is marketing source pipeline down? Well, you know, our top of funnel conversion was pretty good, but MQLs were down. Well, why is that? Well, pay channels are getting more expensive. So we rely more on organic traffic. Well, um, tell me more. Why is organic traffic down? Well, we have a pretty light content calendar and we, we're not producing as much you know, optimize content as we should. And so, you know, you, you kind of get it as you go further and further down, you begin to figure out what the true problem is, which is important because when you go, when you go back to this idea of design thinking that you were talking about, one key piece to it is problem framing. So if you take the same problem, MQLs are down or marketing source pipeline are down, 
and you frame it around two different causes. One framing is, you know, there's a low ROI on paid ad spend. It's going to put you into a totally different solution space. How you fix it, it could be better analytics software to adjust, you know, your campaign strategy. But if the framing of the problem is, is around this idea of, well, we, we're not getting the same organic lead flow that we should expect, um, the solution space that you're going to step into is more around optimizing SEO content. And there may be a whole other set of solutions that's the right fit for you. And so that's part and parcel to the problem statement is talking about like what actually is the problem, because how you frame that is going to totally define the trajectory of the rest of the deal. As you were saying that, you made me think of something that in this problem solving or in this problem framing, the larger the group, the more opinions you're going to have. And so few people know how to actually uncover what the real problem is. Now, I was just writing about this today in the book that I'm writing. I'm insane enough to think that I could write a book. So I'm putting this thing together. And so it's top of mind. And so many people solve for a symptom. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, they miss it completely. So can you talk to me a little bit more about um, how we can take that problem f- framing? Does that help us in this content creation for creating our, uh, our champion? It does. Um, and this is why I go back at the very start of the conversation. We started to talk about the complexity of having more contacts in the buying process. This is where one of the first jobs is to deconflict differing opinions about what the actual problem is. Because if you don't have buy-in on the problem, it's going to be very challenging to get buy-in on the product down the road. And so that is the first job of the champion is to pull together and create consensus on what the problem is and its level of priority. And when you think about how to sell with that champion, part of what you're doing is you're giving them the message and giving them the language that they need to create that consensus. You're doing it in conversation, in the follow-up materials that you send them, in the materials that they forward on to other buyers. It has to articulate in a way that everybody agrees what the costs of the problem are, the consequences of the problem, which is basically like, why would we even care to do something about this? And finally, um, frame it in a way, which we just talked about, that is going to lead to a solution that they feel is the right approach. And if, if there is not one clarity and two consensus all around the buying team on that, I mean, that's a recipe for a stalled deal where you think you have something. But then come to find out the deal falls apart. It's a little fluffy. You lose the deal for reasons other than, well, a competitor swooped in and steal the deal. You open yourself up for so many more issues further down the funnel. Yeah. And it, it, you, a lot of times people want to blame it on price or they want to blame it on this or that. And likely it's because you didn't do the heavy lifting up front of identifying the right problem, getting consensus, because there are some strong opinions from all of these different perspectives of what's most important. I, you know, I make this all the time. Hey, does my water bottle have a handle? You know, mm-hmm. to you right now, the answer is no, but yeah, there is, right? So it really depends on perspective and how I'm getting uh, compensated or, or what my success metrics are. And to help along with that, how early in the process are you suggesting to this, this, this person to bring others involved to get their perspectives or are you relying on the champion to do all that heavy lifting for you or the majority of them for you? So the earlier in the deal that you can become quote multi-threaded, the better. And the reality is that a champion may not always want to bring in other people into the deal until they personally are convinced and sold that 
okay, this is not only something that's worth bringing others into because it's a big problem, but two, you're somebody who can, who can help me. So again, the earlier you can multi-thread in the deal, the easier it's going to be to help drive some of that alignment and consensus across everybody. But it, it, you kind of run into the tension between, look, if I, I don't think this is worth my, call it VP of marketing's time, then it's going to be very difficult to get that VP engaged without either going over my head as call it the marketing manager, the marketing director, um, or otherwise going about it in a process that may be not as ideal um, as it could be, or not as relational as it could be. Yeah. And, and I think, so we'll, let's dive into the, how do we create the champions? Because the language that you use, depending on where you are in the organization, the language that you you use with those other people within the buyers group is going to depend whether or not they they're going to talk to you. Right? We had an old saying in the old we had an old saying that you're going to get pushed down to the level that you sound. So if mm-hmm. you sound like a user, you're going to end up talking to the users. If you're speaking strategically and you know. Um, the metrics that they are using, their success success metrics or OKRs or KPIs, whatever we want to call it, right? If we're speaking to that in business language, then that's mm-hmm. going to allow us to get up in those C-suites a little bit more. So let's talk about the create. How do we go about creating these champions so that they will help us and make us walk us into these offices, if you will? Yeah. So I, I love that saying, by the way, this idea of you get pushed down to the level that you sound. I also think that you can be pushed up to the level that you sound. Absolutely. In, and so going back to your question around how do we work with these champions um, in order to engage others and, quote, get multi-threaded in the deal is one, one practice that I would highly recommend people think about is this idea of writing forwardable emails. And the idea of affordable email is pretty simple. It's that you're not writing to the person that you are um, sending to in the sender field, but who you want them to send it to. So if I'm writing to the marketing manager, but I want the email to reach the CMO, I'm going to write in a way that speaks to that CMO's goal. And so the idea is, um, one, you have to open up with a larger company-wide objective or outcome that affects everybody and up at that executive leadership level. Two, you have to start including some of that language that you were identifying throughout discovery, um, a problem statement and a trigger phrase that's going to be familiar to leadership because they're already talking maybe up at a board level or in an executive uh, meeting. In the case of a CMO, it might be the mission to reduce customer acquisition costs. Um, And then three, you want to introduce some tension through that problem statement that you were developing Talk about why that big goal or that outcome that the executives care about, why it's at risk. Suggest that the bright, shiny future that they're all marching toward might not happen because of the reality of this problem. And then kind of the key piece to closing the affordable email is to align your ask as opposed to jumping into, for example, like, hey, can we schedule 30 minutes on May 15th? Would love to get a call on the calendar. It's, you know, hey, I'm I'm guessing, you know, let's say the CMO's name is Mary. Hey, I'm guessing Mary might want to weigh in on this plan that we've developed or um, guessing Mary might have some opinions on this too. And so the idea is like, if, if I'm a CMO and I see that my team is talking about a, a plan to help reduce customer acquisition costs that I need to give a board report on next month, you bet I'm going to have an opinion on that. And I'm going to want to weigh in and join that conversation directly. So I go back to the original point of, um, can you work with your champion to get pushed up to the level that you sound? You can, but it comes down to the message that you're developing with them. Now, 
how much, and I hadn't thought about this too much before we had, uh, I started doing a prep for our conversation here today, Nate, how much should the enterprise salesperson be building the content for the business case? Mm-hmm. Um, so they should have a um, large and a very active part, but they should be doing it with or in partnership uh, with that champion. And the reason is that when you think about developing a solid business case, um, there are a couple different pieces to it. First, I'll kind of break down you know, what they are and then two, how you go about them back to your question of like, whose who's role or whose job is this? So when I think about a compelling or a bulletproof business case, one, it's that problem statement up front. What's the problem? It's costs, the consequences, if left unaddressed. Two, what's the approach? Like, what should we do in light of this problem? And this is agnostic of the product. You just want to create consensus that, hey, this is the right way to go about solving it. So what's the approach? Um, three, product fit. So you go problem statement, proven approach. Third is product fit. Why does your product make you the partner of choice in light of that approach that everybody's agreed on? And then fourth, what's the payoff? That's the last piece is like help them step into a future where the outcome that they are craving is their reality. And you put all of those pieces together. And if you look at this, only a quarter of it. So one out of those four parts is language about the product, which means that you as the sales rep cannot create all of the content on your own. You need your champion to be an active piece and a participant in that. But when I look at how so many kind of sales follow-ups process content is designed, it puts all of this work back on the buyer because it's pushing across product information, case studies built by a marketing team in totally different language that doesn't reflect what the buyers are talking about inside of their own team. And when you're pushing all of this across using automation, sales sequences, workflows, and so on, ultimately what you're putting your champion in a position to do is one of two things. Either one, they just wing it. Like they just talk to and speak to the business case that's in their head because they're not going to send those templates over to their CMO, for example. Or two, they're going to go out and actually build their own. They're going to grab snippets from each of those different materials that you sent them, put them in their own internal format, that their team is already used to seeing. And so this is the very last piece on this topic is this idea of camouflaging your content inside the internal formats that the buying team is already using. And this is where the champion can come in. For example, if they use Google Docs, can you build it in a Google Doc? If they use Notion, can you build it in their Notion page? Whatever you can do in order to make it as frictionless as possible for that message to travel as far as it can across the entire buying team that's the goal of the content that you are creating and then sharing with your champion. So is that the help portion of this? So we've identified, we've started creating with them uh, and we create by helping them to identify the problem statement, the impact from not fixing it, uh, the approach that they believe uh, is right, product fit and payoff. So that's all in, mm-hmm. in create and then helping them is making them uh, as frictionless as possible, leveraging their templates, leveraging their technology. Is that right? That's right. And this is when I think about the space that we're building in as a company, we're creating the buyer enablement category. Sales teams have sales enablement and they have entire teams that are dedicated to coaching and creating content on the message about their product. But if you think about the job that a champion is doing, they need those same things. 
like not, not every champion or every buyer is going through the same type of evaluation process that you as a sales rep are leading week in and week out. And so they need somebody to help them think about and develop a compelling message that's going to grab attention. They need materials to help communicate that very articulately. And that's the job of the sales rep. They are a buyer enablement team of one, helping the champion to go share this internally. That's a really interesting concept, because if you think about it, in the old days, people were helping to write RFPs, RFQs, right? And they were mm-hmm. having, helping to create the messaging. And now with as big as the buyer groups are getting, um, and as knowledgeable as they are, it's really about how do you make it, to your point, frictionless? How do you reduce that friction through that whole entire process and get as quickly as possible getting them to that um, satisfice stage, right? Because if they're looking at competing uh, alternatives, mm-hmm. once they find that the majority of their needs are met, that satisfices their requirements and they can move more quickly on it. And if you can make it their language on their documentations showing exactly the clearest and easiest buyer path, I would think that you have a pretty good shot at winning this. Yeah, that's right. Um, but again, if you look at this, the process that most sales reps follow, it doesn't look like that because it's hard. Yeah. It, it requires extra time, creativity, thoughtfulness. And for as much as, and I mean, you know, you're listening to a guy who is building sales technology, right? So, you know, take it for what it's worth. But for all of the technology and automation that has been introduced into the sales process, there has been an equal amount of damage as, uh, call it value created, by setting up a process that you are trying to run um, as, call it automated as it can. By And that's the question. If you're a VP of sales or head of sales listening to this, the question is, what is the sales technology doing for the buyer experience? It's more tempting to evaluate technology through a lens of um, how much time does this save my reps? Does this help them work more deals in a wider portfolio? But I I actually think it's the wrong question. It's what does this do for the buyer's experience? And I think you have to to say, okay, are we harming or helping more with this tool or this tech that we're about to set up? Yeah. And I would think that the tech that you're building here would be one of the few that actually would be helping. I think that you and I are both related, or, um, connected to Todd Capone and he talks about uh, the transparent sale, right? And how he says salespeople can ruin everything. And a couple of months ago, I said, the, you know, for a while now, I've been saying that the key differentiator in the future is going to be your people. And I don't think that's it. I think that's going to be one side of the coin. The second side of the coin is, I think, what you're talking about here. How good are your people? How much do your people differentiate their user experience? And then it goes into that user buyer journey. Is it as frictionless as possible to make it easy and de-risk it? And I think if you can get those two sides of that coin, you're going to be really set and, and be able to stand apart from everyone else. I agree. And that last piece is is key because we talk a lot about sales process and think about what sales reps are involved in. But at the end of the day, what buying is, it's an internal sales process. Buyers are also selling the problem, the approach, all of it to their team and trying to create consensus with a whole bunch of people. So at the end of the day, the buyer is selling just the same, although it's more of an internal 
sales process. Well, we'll come back to how people should uh, look for Fluent whenever it's coming out. Um, so we'll get into that in a second. But uh, before we go off of that, it's been really insightful. So in order to get to, in order to build and make a champion, we want to do a couple of things. We want to identify them. We want to create them and we're going to, we want to help them to make it as frictionless as possible. And you can go back and rewind. We summed it up at a couple of different times. So in order, if you tell people to do this, right. Mm -hmm. A lot of people know, yeah, I should be doing this, but what are maybe some big, the biggest challenges or biggest mistakes, why people aren't taking this approach. So uh, oftentimes it's, they don't know how they're told time and time again, and they see it in their medic framework. For example, you need a champion. It's critically important. And they're like, okay, got it. So who is a champion? How do I create them? And what do I do with them? And so oftentimes I think it's just an information gap you haven't filled in or had the ability to see the different practices and how they work in order to create and then enable a champion. So I think that is um, often the most common reason why people aren't doing this is simply they haven't had the training. Um, the second thing is, honestly, it's hard. It is hard work. <laughs> and I, I, um, I recently wrote this post for Sales Hacker called um, Seven Creative Follow-Up Ideas. And the whole um, premise of the post was that if you are going to get a buyer to consistently give you time during the week away from the job that they need to do today, to evaluate something that can add value to them tomorrow after the point of purchase of a product, you have to make that conversation so valuable, so engaging, so delightful that they're like, of course, Brian, I would love to spend the next 30 minutes inside of my week with you. And creative follow-up as opposed to plugging somebody into a sequence or just sending them a, ten a, a template, I mean, it requires effort and thoughtfulness. That said, I'll go back to this uh, first point around just the information or training gap is that you will get better at doing this over time as you begin to see what types of creative ideas. And again, there's a, a whole list um, that I, I give people as kind of a running start. You'll begin to see some, call it methods that you can use and reapply to different deals over time so that you are applying creativity, but without the same level of just like creative thought that needs to go into it. It's more personalizing than creating over time. A little plan spontaneity. Exactly. There you go. I love that phrase. <laughs> well, wonderful. All right. So um, really get to studying this, uh, learning the tactics of creating champions. And, and that's all about uh, what we've been talking about here. Now, how about um, best business uh, hack you might want to give for either hiring the right salesperson or maybe in how to best implement this to improve that buyer's journey? The, the best thing that I can, I can encourage you to do is bring late stage candidates into actual conversations and have them observe and ride along through the sales process with you. Ask them to craft the follow-up after the conversation. Um, ask them to review and to identify potential risks to the deal. And I can't tell you how many poor hires I've made because I went off of past history as opposed to actually watching them in practice and how many hires I changed my mind on after seeing them come alive and engage with and actually ask questions. And this sounds a little bold of like you would put a process, a prospective hire into an actual conversation with a prospect. And I've done it very regularly. And it will show you things that you can never pick up inside of an interview. 
Now, that's a brilliant idea. I love that because the one of the biggest challenges with hiring salespeople is, you know, we always say it's even the bad ones tend to interview well, they look great on paper yeah. and asking them questions, being able to drill, drill down that they can give you specific examples that takes it to the next level. But this is a whole new level of actually asking them to participate in and then not only participate in just sitting in there by watching, but then actually participating by summing things up. And, and that pops to another question for me is, how critical is the post-summary email or post-summary write-up of this? Is that um, something that your platform is going to be able to help to do? Yeah, so what, what Fluent does in practice is it converts a conversation where a buyer is using their own words to talk about their problem into the content that you send and follow up and share in a workspace where your champion can actually help develop that business case with you. So it, it is a way to build your business case out of your buyer's words, not marketing's words, in order to enable your champion with a clear message. Got it. Okay. So we could even help you crafting that summary email, summary working document to, to keep everybody aligned. You got it. Oh, that would be brilliant. Okay. Um, then... What resources, you, you said that whenever you started off, you said, oh my gosh, I was studying this for years. What are some of the resources that maybe you would recommend that we uh, study so we can learn uh, to do this maybe as, as well as you? So, I, you know, it's funny. I don't read um, a lot of sales books, like sales practices, sales frameworks, and things like that. I read a lot of psychology. I read a lot of books on um, decision-making and the science behind it. And then I, by analogy, applies those to sales. So one, one book that um, I recommend that I, I recently finished is called Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath. Okay. And it's all about the science of making a um, high stakes decision amidst uncertainty and the kind of executive mindset that is used to approach those types of decisions. And it will open up a whole new level of thinking um, and empathy. Another one that I, I loved recently was called Think Again by Adam Grant. That's a great it's, one. It, it is a great one. It's all about how do you help somebody rethink long-held or long-standing assumptions, especially in an enterprise environment where status quo is the number one competitor to a deal. It's extremely applicable. So I would, I would start to um, encourage anybody who's been on kind of a deep track of sales-specific books to start to kind of broaden their genres and dip into some psychology and decision-making science. Now, uh, with Decisive, with the Heath brothers, does that get into the system one, system two uh, decision-making? So that's another very good one. Thinking fast, thinking slow um, is one that talks about the different levels of decision-making bias, where it comes from. Um, so they don't go into that piece of, call it even like the behavioral economics behind that process. But I'll add that as a third one, thinking fast, thinking slow, definitely put it on the reading list as well. Yeah, it, it gets pretty deep. So uh, buckle in whenever you're reading that one, but it's pretty good. Uh, well, cool. All right. Now, how about this? I mean, what the, what's the future hold? What are you seeing coming down the pike that has you going, oh my gosh, and scaring you a little bit or like, yay, finally, we got this coming. What, what has you excited? Well, what has me most excited is just the, the growth of sales tools, platforms, thinking about buyers as the primary user. And the more we design sales, uh, call it platforms or um, gearing interactions around what the buyer is actually experiencing, I think everybody is going to be better off. So I think we are early in a, in a new generation um, that is all, only going to go further down that, um, call it perspective or approach to building. It'd be interesting how you get a lot of these leaders, sales leaders, to buy into this because 
I, I think sales leaders are a little bit behind. They haven't quite caught up yet with the, the massive change that there's been in sales. And um, it's going to be curious how what how how many of those actually catch up and start to view this from the the buyer's perspective like b2c customers have been doing for for or b2c companies have been doing for years and then leveraging the technology to make make life easier um for that buyer's journey so um any tea leaves that you've been seeing there hey they they follow the revenue at the end of the day a sales leader is going to follow the path that leads to the greatest revenue and so i think it's it's on people like me launching our product to go out and prove and show, look, this is the feedback from uh, both sales reps as well as buyers who are buying in, in closing. So um, just you follow the revenue. <laughs> follow the revenue. There you go. All right. Well, hey, this has been a fun, uh, ton of fun, Nate. I can't thank you enough. So who should reach out to you? How should they do it? And why should people reach out to you? Anybody who is currently in an enterprise sales role or wants to level up to working more complex, larger deals, uh, maybe you're selling SMB today and you want to get into more um, complex deals. Um, you can reach out on LinkedIn, Nate Nasrallah on LinkedIn, or if you go check out um, Fluent, F-L-U-I-N-T dot I-O, um, check out our blog. You can download the Enterprise Sales Playbook there as well. Yeah. And also hang out with him. He's on uh, Pavlon, Pav Pavilion. He's also on Rev Genius. So uh, he's been a, a good, useful contributor there. And I heard you say you're writing for Sales Hacker as well. I am. Yeah. I, uh, I contribute content to a couple of different places. So, um, uh, sales hacker is, is one of the more regular ones that I'm nice. Making. All right. Well, check them out. Thank you so much, Nate. We're excited to see this now. Are, are they able to download this or what do they do as a, if they wanted to take some action on this right away? Yeah. So, um, if it comes to the playbook, um, you can just jump in and start reading right away the product we're launching, uh, late June. So if you wanted to check out the product or become part of the beta, you can reach out through our website as well. All right, late June, put it on your calendar, reach out. So thanks so much, Nate. I really appreciate it. So again, don't take this for knowledge sake, take it for application sake. Take one or two key items here. And I'd really encourage you to take those items of identifying that, um, that, that champion, right? Make sure that the incentives are aligned, that they're, they have influence and that influence goes with challenging status quo. It goes into being able to articulate what that company wants uh, to feed that back into for the, the greater good of all. And then really able to not only own the tasks, but follow through and complete them for the influence. And then lastly, um, make sure that they can understand that information and give it back to you and what those success metrics are, fill it out and give you that insight. So that's all on the ID, create and, and help them through this process. Uh, figure out how to do that and we'll be golden and selling enterprise. So thanks again, Nate, really appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate all it. All right, forward this along, follow us along and pass it along, make us better. See you.